0: You're listening to KFI AM640, On Demand. KFI AM640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. On any given day in Southern California... Hundreds of investigators are working more than 10,000 unsolved cases. That's thousands of friends and families who have lost loved ones, thousands of people who got away with a crime, and thousands of murderers who still walk the streets, killers who may be your neighbor, go to your church, or could be dating a close friend. For the next two hours, we'll highlight cases that have gone cold, baffled investigators, or just needs that one witness to speak up. This is unsolved with Steve Gregory. Riverside County District Attorney Cold Case number RIF 152402, a murdered Jane Doe. The County DA announced it had some evidence to get them closer to the identity of a woman who was killed in the early 90s and left buried under brush and shrubbery off Highway 95 near Blythe. In 2010, that woman's killer was convicted. In fact, Keith Hunter Jesperson, also known as the Happy Face Killer, confessed to the murder along with many others. But to this day, the woman he brutally killed and left near Blythe has remained unidentified. So we headed out to the Riverside County DA's office where we spoke with senior investigator Ebony Kavanis about the mysterious murdered hitchhiker.
1: So in August, August 30th of 1992, an unidentified female body was located and um, off the highway 95, seven miles north of the city of Blythe. Um, at the time, the body was in moderate to severe decomposition Um, We had no leads regarding that case, and at the time, the autopsy determined that the cause of death was undetermined. Um, So fast forward from 1992 to 1994, uh, a reporter from the Oregonian uh, newspaper received a letter from an anonymous writer who claims to have murdered the woman that we found in Blythe along with four other women. So in that uh, letter, he confessed to murdering five women and he signed the letter with a happy face. And that's when he was deemed the happy face killer at that point. So in 1995, uh, Clark County Sheriff's Department from Vancouver, Washington, uh, arrested Jesperson um, for the murder of another woman. He confessed to that murder and also said he killed a total of eight women at that time, one of them being the body that we found in Blythe. So in 1996, Riverside Sheriff Investigator Rich Masson and Sergeant Rich Dollarhyde went to Salem Penitentiary to interview Jesperson. And during the interview, um, he gave us information that coincided to the physical description of the female, uh, the placement of her body, the crime scene, the location. And with all of that information, um, we were able to convict him uh, January eighth, 2010, for that Riverside homicide in which he was sentenced to 25 years to life, serving that time in Oregon.
0: At this point, though... The, the missing part of this puzzle is you still don't have an identity of the woman, do you?
1: We do not. And that's what we've been working very hard on trying to do. At this point, we have no name uh, or who she was. She had no identification on her, and um, nothing has come up to even help us with her identification whatsoever other than um, submitting her DNA to Family Tree. Mm-hmm and creating a family tree within that website. It's a direct-to-consumer website. Um, And we're able to find some possible paternal relatives of hers, but they don't know who she is. They have no name for her and didn't know that they had a sibling that was missing. So now we're working on contacting uh, the maternal side of the family. And that's why we're reaching out to the public, because if anyone has any information regarding this homicide or maybe there's some similarities in a missing relative that they have that they can reach out to us and provide us with some type of information.
0: Did Jesperson indicate at all who she might have been, or did he ever have a name for her?
1: He called her Claudia, um, but that possibly is not her name. Um, He said that she uh, gave him the name of Claudia, but when we re-interviewed him in 2023, he said that may have not been her name. So he did provide us with a physical description of her, um, which definitely helped out when we had to do the phenotyping and the sketches. Um, So that was kind of the help that we got from him. Um, He also was able to clarify a few things regarding the murder, like maybe her lifestyle, her demeanor, um, the clothing. He verified a few of the sketches that we had. Um, But other than a physical description... Um, a timeline, and a possible name, he wasn't able to provide us with much else.
0: With your experience, um, he apparently gave you enough information that you were able to file the charges against him and get him convicted of the murder of of this woman, right? Correct, yes. But do you believe he's being truthful, that he doesn't remember much about her beyond that, or do you think, or do you think he's holding back? Because sometimes serial killers like to hold stuff back.
1: They do. I agree with you. There's no way to determine if he's being truthful or not. But he was so detailed regarding uh, the murder itself and the crime scene and her physical description when we found her, including her clothing, um, that we do believe some of the things he's saying is truthful. Also, his uh, truck logs. And fuel receipts show he was in the area during that time.
0: So talk about Jesperson. What What is it he did and wh- who was he?
1: So Keith Hunter Jesperson um, was a serial killer who killed women in uh, Oregon, Washington, California, and Florida. So um, he states that he, um, sometime in the summer of 1992, which we were able to... Um, determined that it was August of 1992. He said that he was in a a brake check area um, conducting brake adjustments for a long haul um, truck that he drives. So at the time, he was a long haul truck driver and he drove a 1989 purple Peterbilt long haul truck. He said that he was in a brake check area off the I, or Interstate 15 South um, near the Cajon Pass in the Victorville area. While he was working under his truck, he says uh, he hears a woman's voice approach him and ask for a ride. Uh, once he agrees to give her a ride, he says that she waves to a man in a Albertson's truck um, who takes off. So he agrees to take her for a ride. She wants to go to the Los Angeles area, and he said she's very adamant about it and her familiarity with the different freeways in L.A made him believe that she was familiar with the area. Hmm. Um, also too, he said he doesn't know very many Albersons that are um, in that area. So he believes she may have come from the Vegas or the Barstow area. So he agrees to give her a ride at that truck stop. Um, he says, I have a long haul delivery. I have to deliver in Phoenix at a specific time. I can't take you to LA, but I can take you to Cavazon So they get in the truck, they drive to Cabazon, Um, they continue I-10 eastbound, um, stop at Cabazon for a brief period of time, Uh, he gasses up, does some adjustments to his truck, she decides she wants to continue on to India.
0: Okay, so before we go any further there, we need to stop, take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about this unknown Jane Doe in Riverside County, with Ebony Kavanis. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640, live and on demand on the iHeartRadio app. This is Unsolved with Steve Gregory. Welcome back. We're inside the Riverside County District Attorney's Office, downtown Riverside. We're talking with Ebony Kavanis. She is a senior investigator with the DA's office here talking to us about a case from 1992 um, involving a woman who was murdered. And to this day, her identity is unknown, but the killer is behind bars, correct?
1: That is correct. Sir. Yes. Is
0: that unusual, Ebony, that you, you that you can convict somebody of murder um, when the person, the victim, is unknown?
1: Even the victim is unknown, there is still a homicide that occurred. So they very well could be convicted for the homicide, and we have a Jane Doe or John Doe victim. Our job is to, even despite the conviction, our job is to at least try to get them identified so their family would have an idea of what happened to them um, and that they can have some closure.
0: Did you ever get to interview Jesperson?
1: I did, yes. I interviewed him in 2023, middle of 2023,
0: yes. Okay, I want to go there, but I want to go back and finish what you were talking about before the break. Um, Jess in, in the truck and had the woman with him who whom he called Claudia, referred yes. to as Claudia, and uh, they were at uh, uh, a truck stop in Cabazon.
1: That's correct.
0: And he wanted to continue to Indio?
1: Um, yes. So initially she said, agreed that he can take her to um Cabazon instead of going to the L.A. route. Once she was in Cabazon, she decided to continue with him to Phoenix. Okay. So um, from Cabazon, they drove to the Coachella Valley Indio area, and they stopped at a Burns Brother truck stop. They had dinner. Um, After dinner, they go back in the truck. They have an argument regarding money, and that's when he kills her inside the bed of the truck.
0: Okay. Argu- Inside
1: the truck cab.
0: So, um the argument with money was it presumed that she was a prostitute?
1: That is not confirmed. Um that's Jesperson's narrative of it, but we have no information to concern uh that confirm whatsoever that she was involved in any prostitution.
0: Cuz he could have been charging her for mileage or gas for all we know, right? We have no idea. Yeah. No, and hey, but he didn't offer any of those
1: details. His narrative is that she was a prostitute, but unless it's confirmed, we're not going to label her as that.
0: Got it, got it. Um, and then you said you got to interview him. So, what was? Tell us what that was like.
1: Um, well,
0: I mean, where, were we, where did you interview him at?
1: I interviewed him at Salem Penitentiary in Oregon. In Oregon? Um, myself and investigator from Riverside Sheriff Department, Amy Contreras, and I conducted the interview with Chesperson. We just asked him to... We, we studied up on the case very well. We wanted to see if there was any variation or changes to his story, or if there was any embellishment, or any additional information he can provide us that he didn't provide the original investigators. So he was very cooperative during the interview. uh, We showed him a few sketches. He pointed out the sketch that best fits Claudia. Um, He also gave us a physical, maybe a more in-depth physical description of her. Um, And then he narrated uh, the time that they had together and also the murder.
0: Um, What about it, uh, what about your conversation with him really stuck out to you? What's the one indelible thing that he told you that uh, just really seared into your brain?
1: I would say the most important part of the interview to me was, he said that was the first time he had seen sketches of her. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I feel that the fact that he was able to look at the three possible sketches we have and choose from one of those sketches, I think, uh, helped us out a lot in the case. And that seemed to be the most important part to me. He very well could have seen the sketches and embellished the truth, but I thought that's the part that kind of was seared in my mind.
0: Had you ever interviewed a serial killer like that before?
1: I have not, no. This was the first serial killer I've ever interviewed.
0: What was that like? going in there in person and sitting across the table from him?
1: It was surprisingly normal. It was surprisingly calm. Um, he's very soft-spoken. Um, just a, just a very relaxed demeanor. There was nothing... Um, of course, when he's describing how he murdered her, that in itself is heartbreaking and shocking. But as far as um, anything exciting or different in the conversation, not much. It was a very, very calm conversation. And each question I had, he was very open to answer.
0: What was his motive for coming clean?
1: He mentioned that... So I'm not sure if you're familiar with one of the murders, but there is a woman who confessed to investigators, I believe it was in Oregon or Washington, she confessed to the murder and said her boyfriend committed the murder. He said that um, the fact that these two people who were innocent uh, went to jail for a murder he committed or was taking credit for his murder led him to the confession.
0: So it was either guilt or ego?
1: Either one. It could be, yes. Yeah? Yes.
0: Um, how many is he responsible for or, is it, or he's confessed to? He's confessed to eight. Do you suspect there's more?
1: The, there is nothing to verify that there are more victims out there from him. So there's no evidence to verify that, there, that he could have murdered more than eight. Um, There's just stories of him speaking to other prison inmates, confessing more murders.
0: So uh, when something like that happens, do you feel that you have to follow up on those?
1: Oh, we definitely follow up on it. We have a database um, that is ran by the federal government called VICAP, and it links commonalities in crimes with victims and with suspects. So he's been in VICAP for a very long time. It There are some links there um, as far as similarity and the method a person was murdered, but the timeline is completely off. So he even admitted that there are several investigators that show up to the prison to talk to him about a murder that they've had in their area, but the timeline is completely off.
0: We're talking with Ebony Cavanis from the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. She's a senior investigator telling us about a serial killer, but one of the women that he killed remains unidentified to this day. We'll talk more about that. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM640. KFI AM640, live and on demand on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory, and this is Unsolved. Welcome back. We're inside the Riverside County District Attorney's Office, downtown Riverside. We're talking with Ebony Kavanis. She is a senior investigator with the DA's office here, talking to us about a case from 1992 um, involving a woman who was murdered, and to this day, her identity is unknown, but the killer is behind bars. Correct?
1: That is correct. Sir. Yes. Is
0: that unusual, Ebony? That you you usually that you can convict somebody? of murder um, when the person, the victim, is unknown?
1: Even the victim is unknown, there is still a homicide that occurred. So they very well could be convicted for the homicide. And we have a Jane Doe or John Doe victim. Our job is to, even despite the conviction, our job is to at least try to get them identified so their family would have an idea of what happened to them um, and that they can have some closure.
0: Did you ever get to interview Jesperson?
1: I did, yes. I interviewed him in 2023, middle of 2023. Yes. Okay, I
0: want to go there, but I want to go back and finish what you were talking about before the break. Um, Jesperson in the truck and had the woman with him, who whom he called Claudia, referred yes. to as Claudia. And uh, they were at uh, uh, a truck stop in Cabazon.
1: That's correct.
0: And he wanted to continue to Indio?
1: Um, yes. So initially she said, agreed that he can take her to um Cabazon instead of going to the L.A. route. Once she was in Cabazon, she decided to continue with him to Phoenix. Okay. So um, from Cabazon, they drove to the Coachella Valley Indio area, and they stopped at a Burns Brother truck stop. They had dinner. Um, After dinner, they go back in the truck. They have an argument regarding money, and that's when he kills her inside the bed of the truck.
0: Okay. Argu- Inside
1: the truck cab.
0: So um, the argument with money, was it presumed that she was a prostitute?
1: That is not confirmed. Um, that's Jesperson's narrative of it, but we have no information to concern, uh, that confirm whatsoever that she was involved in any prostitution.
0: Because he could have been charging her for mileage or gas for all we know, right? We have no idea. Yeah. No. And but, he, but he didn't offer any of those details.
1: His narrative is that she was a prostitute, but unless it's confirmed, we're not going to label her as that.
0: Got it. Got it. Um, and then you said you got to interview him. So what was? tell us what that was like.
1: Um, well.
0: I mean, where, were, where did you interview him at?
1: I interviewed him at Salem Penitentiary in Oregon. In Oregon, um, myself and investigator from Riverside Sheriff Department, Amy Contreras, and I conducted the interview with Chesperson. We just asked him to. We we studied up on the case very well. We wanted to see if there was any variation or changes to his story, or if there was any embellishment or any additional information he can provide us that he didn't provide the original investigators. So he was very cooperative during the interview. uh, We showed him a few sketches. He pointed out the sketch that best fits Claudia. Um, He also gave us a physical, maybe a more in-depth physical description of her. Um, And then he narrated uh, the time that they had together and also the murder.
0: Um, What about it? uh, What about your conversation with him? really stuck out to you? What's the one indelible thing that he told you that uh, just really seared into your brain?
1: I would say the most important part of the interview to me was he said that was the first time he had seen sketches of her. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I feel that The fact that he was able to look at the three possible sketches we have and choose from one of those sketches, I think, uh, helped us out a lot in the case. And that seemed to be the most important part to me. He very well could have seen the sketches and embellished the truth, but I thought that's the part that kind of was seared in my mind.
0: Had you ever interviewed a serial killer like that before?
1: I have not, no. This was the first serial killer I've ever interviewed.
0: What was that like? going in there in person and sitting across the table from
2: him?
1: It was surprisingly normal. It was surprisingly calm. Um, he's very soft-spoken. Um just a, just a very relaxed demeanor. There was nothing, um, of course, when he's describing how he murdered her, that in itself is heartbreaking and shocking. But as far as um, anything exciting or different in the conversation, not much. It was a very, very calm conversation. And each question I had, he was very open to answer.
0: What was his motive for coming clean?
1: He mentioned that... So I'm not sure if you're familiar with one of the murders, but there is a woman who confessed to investigators, I believe it was in Oregon or Washington, she confessed to the murder and said her boyfriend committed the murder. He said that um, the fact that these two people who were innocent uh, went to jail for a murder he committed or was taking credit for his murder led him to the confession.
0: So it was either guilt or ego?
1: Either one, it could be, yes. Yeah? yes
0: um, how many is he responsible for or is it, or he's confessed to
1: he's confessed to eight
0: do you suspect there's more
1: the there is nothing to verify that there are more victims out there from him so there's no evidence to verify that there that he could have murdered more than eight Um, There's just stories of him speaking to other prison inmates, confessing more murders.
0: So uh, when something like that happens, do you feel that you have to follow up on those?
1: Oh, we definitely follow up on it. We have a database um, that is ran by the federal government called VICAP, and it links commonalities in crimes with victims and with suspects. So he's been in VICAP for a very long time. It There are some links there um, as far as similarity and the method a person was murdered, but the timeline is completely off. So he even admitted that there are several investigators that show up to the prison to talk to him about a murder that they've had in their area, but the timeline is completely off.
0: We're talking with Ebony Kavanis from the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. She's a senior investigator telling us about a serial killer, but one of the women that he killed remains unidentified to this day. We'll talk more about that. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640, live and on demand on the iHeartRadio app. This is Unsolved with Steve Gregory. Welcome back. We're inside the Riverside County District Attorney's Office in downtown Riverside. We've been talking with Ebony Cavanis, a senior investigator with the DA's office, about a Jane Doe that was discovered dead in 1992 near Blythe. And in 2010, her killer was convicted. And he now remains in a prison in Oregon. And Ebony, you were telling us that you had an opportunity to interview uh, Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Jesperson, i apologize, Mr. Jesperson, and that um you, you know he was able to confirm a lot of information and you showed him some sketches, and we were talking about these sketches briefly before the break. And I'm looking at one now that shows um this rendering of a blonde woman. And um how old was your Jane Doe approximately?
1: We're saying uh twenty-five to thirty-five years old. Okay, so
0: young woman. Yes. Yeah, young woman. Um and uh, did he say that this, this one that we're looking at right now, did he, did he say this is the closest to her? Actually,
1: no, it's um, one of the original sketches. So he, that Parabon rendering is brand new.
0: Oh, got it, okay.
1: We just got that, we just ordered that, apologize. Um, so I have the three sketches, do you need to see them?
0: Well, we yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. Well, if you have them handy, I apologize, I only printed the one no, to okay. look at, but if um, you've got the others, uh, I'm, I'm curious to find out which the ones, okay, oh, there was okay. was
1: one rendering, well, not rendering, it was a sketch, which okay. is different. This is another sketch.
0: And, and were these from back in 92? Yes. And he said these are more like it?
1: Um, he actually said.
0: That's see. what I was referring to, the braided hair. That's yes. what it was, yeah.
1: Yes. Well, he described her as having wild, shaggy, shoulder-length blonde hair. Okay. So I think this was her version of making it shaggy or wild in some way. So what we did is we showed them this sketch and this sketch. Um, and there was a third one he said, not even close. So he said this was the closest look to her. And with the update he gave us, as far as her appearance, this was Corey Kapensky's final sketch.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: So then um, we got her DNA, um, skull photos from the coroner for the DNA phenotyping. and Describe what the
0: phenotyping is.
1: Uh, the phenotyping is done by Parabon, and what they do is they take the DNA profile and the skull photos. They upload that into their system, and what it does, it predicts a person's physical features, their physical appearance, and uh, their ethnicity.
0: What's the accuracy on these? I don't know. Pretty good. I mean, it, it, so if they this were is fairly new, fairly new, yes. got it? Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So they said based on the DNA, um, she had blue eyes, brown hair, uh, European background. Hmm. Um, But he insisted that she had blonde hair. So they did a blonde blonde rendition of her.
0: Did it seem like at all that he was sort of guessing or did he seem pretty confident in his recollection of her appearance?
1: No, he seemed pretty confident. Pretty
0: confident? Yeah. There was no
1: hesitation with him at all as to which ones looked like her and which ones didn't.
0: Did the two ever have sex?
1: That is not confirmed because her body was mummified when we located it. Uh, He claims that they did have consensual sex, Mm -hmm. but there's no way that we can verify that.
0: Now, when you said the body was mummified, how long had it been out in the open like that?
1: Um, Anywhere from two weeks to a month.
0: And when you said it was, um, uh, what was the stage of decomposition?
1: It was... um, moderate to severe decomposition.
0: and then when you say moderate to severe can you describe what that might look like
1: that is um some partial skeleton i can't even say the word that's partial skeleton skeletonization
0: skeletization? yes is that is that a word
1: (laughs) it's a word i read it no i'm serious i read it
0: okay Um, so so the meaning that there was probably the the skeleton is probably uh, uh, it's
1: visible no, oh. she's just mummified. So mummified. when I said uh, advanced to severe, um, when I say advanced to severe decomposition, that means there are some mummification on her body parts.
0: So I'm surprised out there. You when I'm looking at the aerial photo of where this was at, and in, out there in the desert like that, I'm I'm surprised that it was mummified and not completely ravaged by wildlife.
1: The possibility of it not being ravaged is because she was hidden under brush. So I don't know if that helped Mm. um, with the the state of composition. I don't know if that slows it down. That's something a pathologist would know better.
0: And you said that uh, his reason for killing her was over money, right? He says,
1: yes, they had an argument over money. Uh, She wanted to purchase some items in a gift shop at Burns' brother um, and then demanded some money from him but that is his interpretation of why the argument ensued.
0: Did he ever get into why he killed the other people? I mean, do do the motives seem to match up?
1: Yes, they upset him in some type of way. What Um, was the trigger? The trigger is demanding money, asking for money, um, just being what he perceived as rude or disrespectful. Um, He even said one of the victims falsely claimed that he raped her. um, And that was untrue. Um, He just said that there was usually something that would trigger him into that state.
0: As we wrap up here, Ebony, uh, what is it you need from the public?
1: So what I need from the public is I need them to share this podcast, share our YouTube videos, our social media, share the sketches and the photo renderings of our victim um, and talk with amongst themselves and the community if they believe they have any information whatsoever that would help us identify this victim. If they believe that she may be a relative that's missing from their family or their family has some type of connection with this case, uh, we would love to get her identified. And we ask the public to contact us at our cold case hotline, which is 951-955-5567. Also, they can email us at coldcaseunit at rivcoda.org. If they have their DNA profile uploaded in a direct-to-consumer database, they can move that profile over to jedmatch.com or they can upload it into Jedmatch And see if any of their DNA matches, not only this case, but any of our other code cases.
0: Ebony Kavanis, Senior Investigator with the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. Thank you very much for your time. Good luck. Thank you, sir. You can see those sketches on my Instagram, at stevegregory640. That's stevegregory640. Coming up, another gruesome case of a woman dumped in the desert. And later, trying to find the Christmas night shooters of Riverside. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. You're listening to KFI AM 640 On Demand. You're listening to KFI AM 640 On Demand. KFI AM 640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory, and this is Unsolved. Our next story contains graphic content. This is Riverside County Sheriff's case number A93089013, the sexual assault and murder of Sherry Herrera. We're joined now by Jason Corey, he's an investigator with the Riverside County Sheriff's Department and Mike Thompson, he's also an investigator but he's with the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. They both are a part of a cold case unit that's working in Riverside County to solve these cold cases from years ago and uh, we're talking today about one such case, 1993, a woman found in the desert near an on-ramp eastbound 10 freeway, 50 miles east of Palm Springs. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hello. thank you for having us um,
3: so jason uh, give us an overview of this case so on uh march 30th of 1993 it um uh, just about one o'clock in the afternoon uh some folks just out enjoying uh trying to enjoy the desert uh, uh just about like you said about 50 miles east of palm springs uh they found um the deceased body of of sherry herrera uh just off of the, the the road um off the uh eastbound uh, on ramp at hayfield road and interstate 10 uh, and, uh out there in the in the desert uh it was it was hot that day it was about uh the investigators noted it was about 80 to 85 degrees uh with with a slight wind blowing and um uh and these folks just happened upon a, a very very gruesome scene um and uh and sherry was um uh, was strangled to death and then um the investigation picked up from there and they just uh sherry was a um, a prostitute in the local area would bounce back and forth between uh the coachella valley uh, and Blythe, i i believe to larry um, to larry oh all the, yeah all the way up to to uh and then uh and then anywhere in between um so there was uh, a lot of folks that that the investigators interviewed um just in, in that world um a lot of narcotics uh, uh, different, uh, she had pimps. There were folks that, uh, that they interviewed that were, would send them to in, in different directions throughout the entire investigation. Uh, and they ended up interviewing, um, several, several folks that, that they thought were, uh, were potential suspects. And what kinds of folks? You can see several folks. Um, well, local, local people out to, out to the, the desert area. Um, the, the, Folks that were local back then, um, not too sure where they're at. Where they're at now, we ha- I, I haven't uh, I haven't researched to find out where they are. Um, but uh, known travelers throughout the area, known known uh, drug users. Um, there were several different um, theories uh, that that Sherry had owed different folks uh, money for 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 drugs, uh, different things. Um, so it's. You know, the investigators were taking everything in and just kind of getting spun in different directions at at the time.
0: This has got to be complicated too, Jason, because you are dealing with a prostitute and um, that lifestyle lends itself to just multiple contacts in multiple locations, um, possible multiple motives. Uh, You know, how do you sift through all of that?
3: Well, now I, I have the luxury of, of going back and and uh, and and we do with with all three of us. We have the luxury of going back and reading everything, and then and then obviously um, in cases where we are able to have uh, where we get DNA, um, we're able to do um, that. You know that kind of um, that helps us out tremendously because they didn't have that technology back then. So we're able to use that technology now, where we're able to. Um, I hate to say shortcut because we're certainly not shortcutting anything, but we're able to kind of work our way around all that nonsense that, you know, those different directions that they were thrown into before uh, with, you know, oh well, well, you know, Sherry owed, you know, owed so and so money for, for dope or Sherry, you know, she crossed so and so. So they had her killed, uh, you know, those different directions that they that they were, were directed in back then. So now with other forensic evidence that we're able to use, we're able to you know, be able to, to peel back those layers and say, okay, no, well, this person is excluded now, uh, through forensic evidence, this person is excluded through forensic evidence. And then, um, and so we're, so it makes it easier for us to, to utilize those tools, uh, to sift through all of that and kind of say, okay, Hey, this part is nonsense and, and we don't need to really focus on that.
0: Was so. Sherry's body clothed? Uh, no, she was, she was naked. She was and, and Parti- partially, partially, partially
3: nude. Yes.
0: From the top or the bottom? Uh, bottom. Okay. So you say she was strangled. Was she strangled with like a ligature or was it by hand?
3: With a ligature,
0: correct. Ligature. Actually,
3: I believe it was both. I believe there was, they determined that there was both uh, manual, manual strangulation and, and the ligature strangulation.
0: And was that, that item found nearby? Mm -hmm. Yes. It was. Yes. Um, that seems unusual or is that common? Uh, I don't know that's. have un- the ligature near the body, or it's is it- still on the body? Still on the body. Um, I don't know that's all that uncommon. Okay, must be all the TV I watch. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone trying to you know trying to cover their tracks. So, what does this tell you then, Jason? That you've got a, a partially clothed woman who's a prostitute near an on-ramp uh, with a ligature still around her neck um what was it exactly
3: i don't recall what the exact what the ligature was exactly i I I would be was it a belt i would be speculating yeah i I don't remember so what
0: what does that tell you in terms of possible motive or or whether this was a random or not random but a a spontaneous act or calculated act
3: well i I think it was probably a spontaneous act just just the sheer fact that she's she's out there dumped off this the side of the the freeway uh, in the in the desert. I mean, that's. Um, however, when you know when I say that, I mean it doesn't say um, it's not to mean that that he could have killed her some elsewhere and then taken her there and and, and dumped her in that location, thinking it was remote enough to, um, you know, get back on the freeway and 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 escape. Um, so, but I I don't think. You know, even in 1993, I don't think folks were even, you know, thinking of forensic evidence and leaving, you know, certain items of fr- of evidence. You know, right. nowadays, I think, you know, obviously people are a little more um, understanding of that and they have a they have a better knowledge of of you know cleaning up a crime scene and 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 collecting things that that may may identify them forensically at, at a later time. I think they're better at at cleaning up after themselves now. Whereas I, I think th- those things that were left behind because you know, then they didn't think that those would ever be used to, uh, to potentially identify them.
0: Mike, you know, um, I know that you use this task force uses
4: forensic genealogy. Um, Was that something you were able to employ here? We are, we are employing forensic genealogy on this case. Um, uh, The ethnic predictors on forensic genealogy aren't a hundred percent definitive, but our ethnic estimates are that this, uh, person is an African American. Um, We have, uh, unfortunately, the genetic matches are quite distant. So we are in the process of trying to um, build that uh, family tree and identify some people who might be of a closer relationship to our potential suspect.
0: That's, uh, you know, it's fascinating because you have to have some sort of evidence or whether it's DNA or some sort of a sample, right? Correct. And so what were you able to to get from the scene or from the person or from the body of Sherry that helped you with
4: this? Well, there's a male DNA profile recovered from the victim. And... Would this be
0: like bodily fluid type stuff? Yes. Okay. And then... um, And then that's that was plenty that was enough to get you started then
4: correct so uh back oh the mid-1990s when dna became very very common they they uploaded that profile into codis and there's no matches in CODIS, but it did lead to a match of another victim in another state well and that doesn't seem too uncommon with the fact that the 10 is probably one of the
0: biggest major thoroughfares, you know, in this part of the country, right? Correct. Correct. Was there evidence that you were talking about, uh, Sherry was found in the desert near the on-ramp. So out in the dirt, and I've seen plenty of that cause I've traveled to 10 many times and we're talking about back in 1983, was there a fence of any kind, uh, did the person walk out there or did they both walk out there? Were there footprints? how
2: did they get out there?
3: I, I don't recall seeing uh, that they re- that they documented any footprints uh, in the in the area, but it, she wasn't very far off of off the side of the side of the road, and um, and I don't recall off the top of my head. Um, I, I know there was um, significant decomposition, but I'm not exactly sure um, how long she had been out there at that location.
0: Hey guys, I want to pick that up too. Let's uh, talk more about that. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM six forty. KFI AM640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory and this is Unsolved. For more on this case and others go to KFIAM640.com keyword unsolved. We're talking with Mike Thompson, Jason Corey about the 1993 death of Sherry Herrera, a woman who was found in the desert strangled to death uh, 50 miles east of Palm Springs. Actually, the eastbound on ramp to Hayfield Road. Uh, before the break, guys, we were—I felt like we were getting really deep into the uh, the forensics part of this, and I was asking you questions about how Sherry's body got out to the middle of the desert. You said there was no indication of footprints at this time, but let's go back a little
4: further. Then, do you have any kind of a timeline? When was Sherry last seen, and where? Go ahead. Uh, Sherry was last seen uh, March twenty-fifth, nineteen ninety-three, at a truck stop in Tulare. And then she's recovered five days later with evidence of decomposition on March 30th. In a very, you had mentioned that you'd driven that stretch of road. You know how once you go east of Palm Springs, you are isolated until you really get to Blythe. That stretch of road, it's not uncommon at all for truck drivers, travelers, RVers, just to pull off the side of the road. to take a break, take a nap, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And then the heat on top of that, uh, this speeds up the decomposition. So was the medical examiner able to estimate how long she'd been dead?
4: I don't believe so. Several days Several days. So, I mean, it, again, going back on March 25th is the last time we know her to be alive. So, um, so now as a cold case investigator on
0: this, Going back to 1993, last seen at a truck stop, is that, do you actually, now do there's really no need to go up to that truck stop per se is there, but how do you, where do you go from there?
3: well I, I think in this case the the most important thing is the is the forensic genealogy to, to keep working that angle and certainly I mean that is something that that we we would be I and mean, we don't we don't rule anything out I mean we'll take a drive and we'll go we'll revisit these areas uh, look at them just for our own personal um, you know knowledge of, of these of these areas so that way uh, you know we're better educated about about these things but with the with the, the DNA and knowing that it, it belongs to a um, you know, a certain, a certain, um, um well, with it, with the DNA, we're able to, the, the forensic genealogy would just come into play a little bit, a little bit more. So, um, let, you know, let those guys work there, you know, use that investigative tool to narrow those down. And then from there, um, once they have, if they can put together a, a list of, of people that we can go back out and talk to, then we'll, then we'll go, uh, we'll go talk to those folks.
0: Have you interviewed anybody on this case so far?
4: No, no, we're, we're really trying to work the DNA angle on it. Can we identify who that person is and then develop that person's profile? What, what takes this person to, um, to our victim? What takes us to the other victim? Is there a nexus between them? Um, and where's our suspect living? What is he doing for work? We, we suspect he could possibly be a truck driver or, you know, maybe he's just a traveler who uses the I-10 corridor for personal purposes. Which complicates things even more. Well, and like you had mentioned, we, we had mentioned, I mean, she, she was a prostitute and unfortunately she wasn't in a great place in life. And frequently law enforcement is accused of not caring about a victim because right. she's a prostitute. But those present a lot of unique challenges. If I did not come home tonight and I get reported as a missing person, you could ask my friends, my family, my coworkers, "Where was Mike? Where was he going? Oh, he was going to go meet Steve Gregory here at RSO. Well, did he show up? What time did he leave? Where did he go? Did he use his credit card to buy lunch? And and back then they didn't have the cell phone technology and things like that. But but unfortunately, and and yeah, processes changed with the advent of the internet. But you go back to the '90s a prostitute working a truck stop, she gets into a car of somebody that she probably doesn't know, somebody that probably her friends don't know, to go to a destination that she doesn't know about. Is she going to go on a long drive across country, or are they just going to go down the street for a sexual purpose and then return? And so when you try to talk to her friends, who was she with, where was she going, you encounter those problems that you don't typically encounter on a traditional missing persons investigation. You don't have a financial footprint to follow to see where did they go? Where did they go next? Where did they go next? And unfortunately they're in a circle of friends who are sometimes in the same bad place that they are, where typically they don't cooperate with law enforcement, or maybe they just don't know. I saw her get in a truck with somebody. Who was it? Oh, I don't know. What was distinctive about the truck? I don't know. How long was she going to be gone? When was she going to be back? And you just don't get those types of information. And so reconstructing what happened, when, where, why, and how can be very challenging. Forensic genealogy, you know, something you're
0: really leaning on, and it's fascinating to me that you even you said you might have a suspect profile, but this information is only as good as the data that's inputted into it, correct? Correct. So how does how do people I mean, do I just submit my DNA to this
4: database? How does that work? Well there are a number of Direct to Consumer Kits, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, My Heritage, Family Tree DNA. If you have completed one of those tests already, you can download your DNA and submit it to GEDmatch. GEDmatch is uh, an online resource, a clearinghouse where people can submit their DNA for comparison between because obviously Ancestry doesn't talk to 23andMe, doesn't talk to my heritage, and et cetera. So, I I understand I'm asking some people to do things that might make them feel uncomfortable by submitting their DNA in a JED match. They might be identifying a cousin, a second cousin, some type of family member identifying them to law enforcement. Sherry Herrera was not in a great place in her life, but she did not deserve to have what happened to her. She was viciously sexually assaulted and murdered, and nobody deserves to have that. She's entitled to have the person who did this held accountable. And for their actions,
0: gentlemen, I wish you the best of luck on this. This is, sounds like a complicated case. It sounds like it's it, you've got a lot of variables and just a lot of roadblocks. But I wish you all the best success on this one. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank, Thank you, guys. Coming up, the Christmas night shooting of twenty sixteen in the city of Riverside. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM six hundred and forty. <coughs> AFI, AM 640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory and this is Unsolved. For the first time, surveillance video has been released showing an attack on two people in a car in the city of Riverside. It happened in a residential area. This is the case of the Christmas night shooting of 2016 joined now by Riverside Police Department Officer Javier Cabrera. He is a spokesperson for the Riverside Police Department. And we're talking about a shooting from 2016. Happened Christmas Day of 2016. So first of all, officer, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Let's Let's start with an overview of the case. So tell us about the shooting that day that, in, that involves a, a carload of people and just shooters that came out of nowhere. Just give us a background.
2: Yeah, this actually occurred on Christmas Day in 2016 at about 10, 10.09 p.m. Uh, the victim, her name is Cassie Verrett. She was sitting with a male companion inside uh, her vehicle on 1st Street between Main Street and on Orange Street in our city. They were sitting inside the car when all of a sudden Three uh, Hispanic males walking on the sidewalk, without any notice, you know, all of a sudden, produced handguns and began firing into the vehicle. Uh, Cassie was able to uh, start the car, and then realized, I guess, she had in reverse. You know, sped, hit the car behind her, and then was able to drive away, and then realized that she actually had been hit. There was blood inside the vehicle, and uh, she just she was able to drive herself and her companion to the hospital, where they were treated for their injuries. So. What time of the day? This was at night? This was at night, about 10 o'clock, after, little, shortly after 10 o'clock at night.
0: And so were you initially able to get information? Of, how were you able to find out? I mean, Cassie survived? Correct. Right, so she was able to give you sort of a, of an overview of what happened. And you said she didn't realize she had the car in reverse?
2: Well, yeah, she said it, it all happened so quickly uh-huh. that when, when the shooting started happening, she just wanted to get out of there. And she had said she didn't even know the cars were in reverse. She just got on the gas, and the car went backwards, she hit a car that was behind her and then just threw it in the drive and then drove out of there.
0: You were talking about first street between Maine and Orange. What kind of an area of town is that?
2: It's a, it's a residential neighborhood. Oh so is it just all homes around there? It's more town homes, yeah there's some homes, town homes, different types of uh, residences there. And were there street lights? I mean was it illuminated? Uh yeah there are there are streetlights there. So
0: Unusual. I mean, obviously, a shooting out of nowhere like that—a random shooting—or was it random? We, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, is it unusual for that kind of a shooting to happen in
2: this kind of an area of town? Well, you know, some some acts are—you know—we consider them random acts, but we are not. Right now, we really don't know if this was just a random act. We're trying to—we're still trying to figure it out that night. Um, tell us a little bit about Cassie. What? what is she? Uh, what does she do? Who is she? And what's her background? You know, I. I really don't know much about Cassie. She's just a family girl and uh... uh How old is she? I believe she was 22 at the time. 22 at the time. She's almost, I believe she's almost, she's 28 now.
0: Yeah. okay.
2: So she had family girl and... Correct, we don't, yeah, she doesn't have any type of gang affiliations. Uh, the person that she was with in her car, we believe he might have had some gang ties, so that, you know, we're not 100% sure because we don't have anybody in custody to confirm anything, but yeah, we we have strong suspicions that they were possibly targeting him, and unfortunately, he was collateral damage. Was he a, is he a boyfriend or was a boyfriend? At the time, I believe he might have been our boyfriend. We're not 100% sure.
0: And then what were you able to get from him? It, it sounds like he wasn't hit at all then, or, or he
2: He was grazed okay. by a bullet. He had some, like a small graze, and he was treated at the hospital and released on the same night. What were you able to get from him? We uh, interviewed him, got some information, a uh, description on suspects, what he believed were the suspect, suspect descriptions. Uh, he was fairly cooperative the, towards the beginning of the uh, investigation.
0: And what about his background? I mean, th- was there anything about his behavior or or uh,
2: anything that led you to believe that he might be involved in a gang? Uh, after they conducted some uh, follow up investigation, they I can't confirm it or deny, but there are there are some type of gang uh, ties mm-hmm. that he was involved mm-hmm.
0: in. Did that make you guys suspicious right off the bat?
2: Well, you, you know, you were assuming that yeah, there are definitely most likely he was the target. Not Cassie. So uh,
0: we're talking, by the way, with Officer Javier Cabrera with the Riverside Police Department about a shooting on Christmas 2016, happened in the evening hours in a residential area of Riverside. We're uh, you're, you're kind of going down this gang path because uh, uh, you, you said there might be some affiliations of some sort with the boyfriend of this Cassie that was hit. Um, the, the gang affiliation, let, let me back up then. How many documented gangs do you have in Riverside?
2: I'd have to look look that up. But we have we have quite a, we have quite a gang. few. We have some gangs. Yeah. I'm not going to. We, we do have some sure. gangs in the city.
0: Uh, active? I mean, to the point where it's it's a problem, or is this just? Or do, or do these gang related crimes crop up and then they die down? Correct.
2: Yeah. We we don't comparable to like other cities like L. A. We don't mm-hmm. we don't have that big of a problem, but but the problem still exists.
0: Yeah. Um, so. You know, and I know you weren't the investigator there that night. You, you you're just you're sort of accounting the story for. Us. So uh, I know that you may not know a lot of the the nuances of it. But what were you able to get from him other than a suspect description? Was there any indication or suspicion uh, based on his body language or anything that might have led you to believe that, that there was something more to this? No, not, that Nothing. night, no, we didn't get anything from him. So now you've got Cassie, uh, who is. You say she was in her 20s, early 20s at the time. 22. 22. And yeah, what 22. about the, the man, the young man? Uh, you know what? I really, I don't have that information right now. So fast forward to today. Um, then have you had to, now that you released this video, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, coming up, but have you been able to talk to Cassie again or this boyfriend again? Have you been able to get anything new from
2: them? We talked to Cassie and uh, some family members of her. And uh, but we have not been able to. We didn't talk to the to the male companion. Are they still together? No, they're okay. not together. They don't even. She doesn't even know where he's at. or oh. she hasn't got a hold of him or anything. Now,
0: um, when you talk about this residential area, were there any other crimes, or is that a uh, what sort of your crime map? Uh, what does your crime map look like for that part of town?
2: There's been some uh, crimes in that in that particular area. Some gang activity in that area. And so when you that, say
0: gang activity, can you be more specific?
2: Just, you know, diff- different types of crimes that we, we could possibly label as uh, gang-related like types thefts, of Thefts, robberies, assaults, murder. Assaults, yeah. yeah shootings, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a big neighborhood, so it's just that particular street, maybe not, not that particular street, but the actual neighborhood, the surrounding areas. Yeah, we've had shootings and different things that are possibly gang-related. And what about the demographic for that area? What's the demographic? Usually that area is predominantly predominantly uh, Hispanic and African-American.
0: Okay, uh, socioeconomic, I mean is this a, a wealthier area of town? Is it a not-so-wealthy area? I would say like middle class. Middle class? Yeah. Okay, so typically probably a very quiet neighborhood, working-class families? For the most part, yeah. Yeah, so this is an unusual occurrence. Yeah, I would say that. Okay, when we come back we're going to talk more about this shooting in 2016. It uh, happened on Christmas day And in the city of Riverside, we're talking with Officer Javier Cabrera. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM640. KFI AM640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory and this is Unsolved. We're talking with Javier Cabrera. He's an officer and spokesperson with the Riverside Police Department about a shooting. Uh, Not really sure if it was random or targeted, but it was a shooting on Christmas day, 2016. Actually took place around 10 o'clock at night in a predominantly uh, middle-class neighborhood of Riverside. And before the break, you know, we were talking a little bit about possible gang affiliation between the boyfriend of the woman that was driving and um, you said you were not really sure yet that there might be might not be it wasn't really determined but now what kind of brings us together is you've released a video that shows cassie throw the car into reverse you know rush backwards it shows what appears to be the guys opening fire um so this is a video that you just recently released um you know in the month of april right why
2: now and not then okay back then when the actual incident occurred uh, we were actually working and investi- doing uh, several investigations while when the incident occurred. Mm. One of the investigations was a homicide. And uh, two, or may- one or, either, or maybe even two of the uh, suspects on this video that we obtained that night, uh, their were physical characteristics and uh, different things, led us to believe that they might be the same people, might be related. Oh. So then we were kind of like, you know, it we'd probably compromise the investigations that we were already deep into if we released that video. So that's when we decided not to release that video because of the ongoing investigations that were taking place. Well,
0: that's kind of interesting. So then, and I suppose, and I'm, and just correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm presuming that since there was no death included, or involved, rather, in this shooting we're
2: talking about now, that it didn't seem to be as big of a priority as solving the homicide prior. Well, it's still always a priority, you know, because this is somebody's somebody's daughter It's somebody's family member that it's still always a priority, but we still have to maintain the integrity of the other investigations and we don't want to compromise that. That's a tough spot to be in. It is. Wow, I don't think I've heard
0: of something like that where you've had to sort of stop one investigation in favor of another because
2: the information might be the same in in both cases. Right, where we really stopped uh, her investigation, we we continued to work diligently with what we had. Okay. It's just the actual video we couldn't release to the public.
0: I see, I see. Okay, that makes sense. So
2: then, um,
0: if you've released the video now, some, what, uh, six years later? Correct. Almost six no, years. Yeah, Five almost six years later. Yeah. So are we to take from that, that either you solved the previous homicide
2: or you just hit a brick wall? You know what? The previous ones, I, I'll be 100% honest. I, I'm not 100% sure if if those were actually solved. There's a possibility they were. I would oh. have to research. By, by the actual report number and, and go back. But and, somebody uh, gave the green light for the release of the video. Correct, then. meaning that it would no longer be a compromise, uh, those old investigations, yeah. Interesting. I uh, hope you can maybe tell us about that because I'd still like to know
0: how that came to be. That's so fascinating. Um, so now explain, because you obviously people are listening, explain what's on the video. What did the video show you? The
2: video shows, uh, obviously, uh, Cassie is parked inside her white Malibu along the curb when uh, first one Hispanic male appears, he's like a heavyset Hispanic male. He appears walking kind of ahead, kind of, looks like he's like uh, checking out the, the whole situation, checking out the scene. He's walking first, and uh, as he walks past her car, the other two Hispanic males follow behind him. And as right as the other two Hispanic males reach the front of the car, on the sides they were passing along the side, along the car on the sidewalk, that's when the heavyset Hispanic male turns, Everybody pulls out the guns and just start opening fire on the vehicle. And where did the, the rounds go through? The windows or how, how, where did it go See through? in the video it shows them going through the front windshield. front windshield. You go through, the I believe, the side door. The car was hit multiple times and we found a total of uh, 10, uh, 10 spent shell casings at the scene. 10 spent uh, of within three weapons, three guns. Correct. So it looks like they shot 10 times. Yeah. Wow. Um,
0: it's miraculous. Yes, that nothing more happened to them.
2: It was it truly was, especially with her, because she uh, she got hit three times, and it was just she was fortunate that you know she's still here with us. And
0: so, what else uh, did the video show you? Did were you able to get an,
2: enough of a description of the suspects? We have a description, correct? And like I said earlier, the video was not released to the public, but it was released internally. And so, how, how did you department. use that internally
0: then? And you were talking about the previous case. So, so did you? How did that work? Did you reach out to other investigators in the department and say, hey, watch this, do you know these guys?
2: Correct, what we do is we'll release it uh, uh, department wide for our sworn officers. And then a lot of times it's a lot of, uh, our department has very proactive officers. They're constantly out there and they contact a lot of people. And along these years, they, they'll be, they'll know they contact so many people that remember names, they remember where they live. And then in this case, a couple of our, uh, former gang intelligence uh, detectives saw the video and they like, you know what, they it resembled some people they, they might have encountered in the, encountered in the past. Mm-hmm. So they also we had now a couple of persons of interest. And in where did that take you? Well, uh, once we established you know, the persons of interest, and we we uh, were able okay. to uh, put together <laughs> photographic lineups. We actually <clears throat> uh, we put in three photographic lineups at three separate times for Cassie uh, to the victim to uh, look at the photographic lineup right. with one of the persons of uh, interest in it and she wasn't able to identify anybody on any of the three occasions. And the male companion participated mm-hmm. in two of them and he also was not able mm-hmm. to identify anybody. Do you
0: think that's a, a how soon after the, the incident happened that, that you had the line up? And Do the only reason I'm asking that, officer, is because no, I'm curious the, uh, that point. is this a case of, based oh. on your experience, of uh, of the trauma still? Or, or do you think they just didn't get a good look?
2: You know what, it could be both, a little bit of both. Because uh, sometimes it's either, it, two things could happen. When something traumatic like this happens to somebody, <clears> they throat> either throat> have a throat> spitting throat> image of the person, they won't forget their face, or it'll be the complete opposite. Mm. They won't remember. So that's the, that's the unfortunate part when they don't remember exactly. In this case, you know, there was some street lighting, but it was a little, you know, it could have been a little dark it might have been hard to actually get a, a good look at their face and it probably happened so quick. So soon as she heard the gunshot, she's probably like trying to get out of there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of those things.
0: So the persons of interest that you had, um, is this a case of where you just let them go and that's it or do you put any surveillance on them?
2: No, we did all that. There was uh, the person's of interest uh, led to search warrants at the residences, parole searches, probation searches. Surveillance, And unfortunately, it just, it didn't go anywhere. It just dead ends.
0: Were these guys clean?
2: For for this particular case, yeah. We didn't find any weapons. Oh, but they have history. Correct. Have but for this history. particular, we were not able to mm-hmm. put this shooting, you know, them as the shooters. So what is it you want from the public? You know what? Just sh- see the video. Maybe you recognize somebody. Maybe you've heard something. Maybe, you know, you never know. Somebody might have said something. You might talked about it. You heard somebody talk about it you just never know so we're hoping that maybe showing this video might shed some light maybe some some new set of eyes we'll see something and they can you know we can get some new leads and uh, reopen this case
0: well of course people are free to and should be encouraged to call the Riverside Police Department if you'd like though you can also hit pound 250 on your cell phone and say the keyword unsolved and leave any information there we'll make sure that investigators get that so officer Cabrera thank you so much for your time much appreciated
2: and uh, good luck, we, we hope that you can solve the case. Awesome, thank you so much.
0: And that's gonna do it. Unsolved with Steve Gregory is a production of the KFI News Department for iHeart Media Los Angeles, Robin Bertolucci, Program Director, Chris Little, News Director. The program is produced by Steve Gregory and Jacob Gonzalez. the digital producers, Andro Mamo, the field engineers, Tony Sorrentino, and the technical director is David Callaway. Coming up next, it's Coast to Coast, but first, This is KFI AM640. Time now for a news update.
4: KFI AM640, On Demand.